11 episodes. That's how many it took us to get through the 10th of the evil pouches of fraud, the 10th of the malabolgia that form this giant circle of human misery in Inferno. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which usually we slow walk passage by passage through Dante's Inferno and on beyond in the comedy. But we're going to stop and look back at the 10th, the last pouch of fraud. Here's what I'd like to do in this episode of the podcast, a little different from usual. I would like to read the entire 10th pouch in my English language translation. You can find it on my website, MarkScarborough.com or WalkingWithDante.com. I'm going to read the whole thing, which means I'm reading all of Canto 29, which actually starts a little bit in a tricky threshold space between the ninth and 10th pouches and read all the way back to the end of Canto 30 and even a little bit into Canto 31 of Inferno in order to finish all of this off. This is all going to be done without sound effects, voices. This is just a straight reading of my translation of the medieval Florentine. And after that, I'd like to talk about six big concepts that come out of the 10th pouch, six ways that we might further talk about discussing what happens here. Let's set off with the reading. The hordes of people with so many weird wounds had so besotted my own lantern-like eyes that I yearned to stick around and weep. But Virgil said to me, what are you still looking at? Why is your gaze still stuck down here on the sad, hacked-up shades? You didn't behave like this at any other pouch. Consider this. If you believe you can count these souls, this valley goes around for 22 miles. What's more, the moon is already below our feet. There's little left of the time that was granted to us, and there's a lot more to see that you haven't yet seen. If you'd considered, I replied right away, the reason I wanted to gawk a bit, perhaps you might have let me stick around a little longer. My guide had already taken off, and I was bringing up the rear, still intent on my answer, so I added, down in that slit where I fixed my eyes just now, I believe that a spirit of my own blood cried out for the shame that costs him a lot down here. At that, my master said, Don't let your thoughts founder on that shore any longer because of him. Pay attention to something else and leave him be, because I, too, saw him at the foot of the bridge, pointing at you and threatening with his finger. I heard them call him Jerry Del Bello. You were then so fully enthralled with the guy who used to hold Oatford that you didn't look over there before he took off. Oh, my guide, it was because his violent death, I said, has not yet been satisfied by any who partake in the shame of it that he's become so apoplectic. That's why he went away without speaking to me, at least so I think. And this makes me feel even more compassion for him. 
So we kept on talking as far as the first spot on the ridge that could show us the next valley's floor, if enough light were to get down into it. And when we were over the last cloister-like enclosure of these evil pouches, and all its converts were apparent to our vision, weird laments pierced me as if these arrows had iron tips made of I immediately covered my ears with my hands. It was like all the suffering from July through September in the hospitals of Valdechiana, as well as Marema and Sardinia, were gathered in one ditch, indeed just like that. And such a stench hit us, as if it came from a heap of putrefying body parts. We came down to the last embankment of that long ridge, as usual sticking to the left, and then my eyes could get a more lifelike view down toward the bottom where the ministress of the Lord on high, that is infallible justice, punishes all the falsifiers in her bureaucratic records. I don't believe it could have been much sadder to see the people of Aegina in the full grasp of the disease when the air was thick with so much contagion so that every animal, even the little worms, were all done in, at which point the ancient people, or so the poets held for certain, were restored to life from the seed of ants. It was just that bad in that dim valley to see all the spirits languishing like shocks of limp grain. This one over that one's stomach, this one over that one's shoulders, another crawling on all fours, all in an attempt to transpose themselves along that wretched path. Step by step, we went along without talking, watching and overhearing the invalids who couldn't even lift their bodies up. I saw a pair propped up against each other, like a pan against a pan, propped up to dry. Both of them were pocked with scabs from head to foot. I've never seen a stable boy who's kept his master waiting, or who wants to get off to bed, work his curry comb so fast as each of these plied the teeth of his nails on himself to get rid of the rabid itch, which has no other method for relief. Their fingernails ripped off the scabs the way a knife can clean the scales off a sea bream or off other fish with even larger scales. You there, ripping at your male coat, began my master to one of them, and sometimes even making pincers out of your fingers. Tell us if there are any Italians among those gathered here so that your nails may prove an eternal tool for this sort of work. We're both Italians whom you see ruined like this, one replied in tears. But who are you to ask anything about us? My guide answered, I am the one who descends with this living man from rim to rim, and I intend to show him hell. At that, they stopped propping each other up, and each one, all a twitter, turned to me, along with the other guys who'd overheard him as if only an echo. My good master sidled up close against me and said, Say to them anything you want. And so I began, since he'd wished me to, in order that the memory of you cannot be stolen from the minds of men up in the primary world, but can go on living under many a sun. Tell what you are 
and who your people are, your horrid and nauseating pain shouldn't make you afraid to reveal yourselves to me. I was from Arezzo, answered one of them, and Albero of Siena made me get put to the fire, but the reason I died didn't push me down here. Sure enough, I did say to him as a joke, I know how to rise up and fly through the air. That one... He had the will, but not much smarts, and the dupe wanted me to show him the art of flight, but only because I couldn't turn him into Daedalus. He had me set on fire by one who loved him as a son, but into this last patch of ten for the alchemy that I practiced in the world, I was damned by Minos, who cannot make a mistake. And I said to the poet, was there ever a people so vain as the Sienese? Certainly not even the French by a long shot. Then the other leper, who heard me, replied to my words, except certainly for Strika. He knew how to moderate his expenditures, and for Niccolo, who was the first to create the lavish recipe using cloves there in the garden where such seeds can germinate, and also for the brigade for which Caccia d'Asciano squandered his vineyards and great wealth, and to who Abagliato showed off his wit. But so that you will know who seconds your claims against the Sienese, let your eyes rest on me for a while and see if my face will give you the right answer. Then you'll see I'm the shade of Capocchio, who falsified metals by alchemy. You've got to remember, if you're the guy I think you are, how good an ape of nature I was. In that time of year when Juno's cruel fury at Semele was spent on the Theban bloodline, as she did over and over, Athamas became so totally insane that when he saw his wife walking around with her two children in her hands, he yelled, Let's spread out the nets so that I can ensnare the lioness and her cubs at the crossroads. Then he stretched out his unsparing claws, grabbed the one called Laercus, spun him around, and smashed him against a rock, at which his wife drowned herself with her other cargo. And as soon as fortune ran the damn the torpedoes heights of Troy into the ground so that the king and his kingdom were broken to bits, after sorrowing Hecuba in agony and a prisoner watched Polyxena die and found Potolodorus near the banks of the sea, she roamed about in torment, went completely mad and barked like a dog because all that sorrow had rattled her mind. Even so, neither the crazed Thebans nor the Trojans had ever managed to seem so barbaric as to wound a beast, much less human parts. As two shades I saw who were pale and naked, they bit as they ran in the manner of pigs when the gate of the sty is left open. One of them came up to Capocchio and buried his tusks into the nape of his neck, then dragged him along so that his belly scraped against the hard floor of the ditch. And the guy from Arezzo, who was left there shivering in fear, said to me, that ghoul is Gianni Schicchi. He goes about all rabid to rough up others in this way. Oh, I said to him, and so the other may not sink his teeth into you. Grant me the favor of telling me who that one is before it hurries off. And he to me, that's the old soul of the debased Mira, 
who became her father's lover well beyond the bounds of proper love. That one came into sin with him by falsifying herself into the shape of another, just like that one venturing off over there. Who? To win the queen of the herd falsified himself as Buoso Donati to make a last will and testament that was perfectly legal. I had my eyes fixed on those two rabbit guys until they pass on from where we were. Then I turned around to look at the other bad-born people. I saw one who'd been made into the shape of a lute. If only he'd been sliced off at the crotch, right where the trunk of a guy is forked. The bloated dropsy had so distended his parts with all these badly digested humors that his face was not in proportion to his gut. He had to hold his lips open the way a feverish guy does, one who's so thirsty that he curls one lip down and the other inverted up. Oh, you guys who don't suffer any pains in this horrid world, I don't know why, he said to us. Look over here and pay attention to the sufferings of Master Adam. I had plenty of what I wished for when I was alive. Now, alas, I crave the tiniest dribble of water, the rivulets that flow down the green hills in the Casentino on their way to the Arno, make the channels cool and damp. They are set before my vision from now to eternity, and not without purpose, because their image dehydrates me all the more because of the malady that melts the flesh off my face. The firm justice that pokes at me takes its rationale from the place where I sin to put my sighing to flight more quickly. Romena is up there where I falsified the coins that were imprinted with the image of John the Baptist. That's why I left my body burned up there. But if I could see the sad sack souls of Guido or Alessandro or of their brother... I wouldn't trade that site for the Branda Springs. One of them is down here already, if these enraged shades running about sometimes come to speak the truth. But what good does that do me if my limbs are bound like this? If I were only free enough from taint and lightweight enough that I could move an inch in a hundred years, I'd set off already on the path to find him among these disgusting people. Even though this circle is 11 miles around and spreads out not less than half a mile across, I joined this sad family because of them. They convinced me to mint those florins so that each contained three carats of worthless crap. And I to him, who were those two steaming like wet hands in the winter, the ones stretched out near your right frontier? I found them here and I don't think they've ever even rolled over, he said, since the moment I rained down this sharp slope, nor do I believe they ever will for the rest of eternity. One is the woman who falsely accused Joseph. The other is the false Sinon, the Greek from Troy. Because of their acute fever, they reek like burned grease. And the guy had the pair, who was offended, perhaps of being named in such a dim way, smacked his fist against Master Adam's distended belly, which rang out like a drum. And Master Adam turned to smack that guy in the face with his arm, which seemed about as hard as the other guy's fist, and said to him, 
Even though I weigh so much that the range of motion in my limbs is almost nil, I still have an arm supple enough for just this sort of work. Whereupon the other replied, When you were on your way to the fire, it certainly couldn't move so quickly, but it could do that much more when you were counterfeiting. And the guy with dropsy, you speak the truth, although you were such a lousy witness when they quizzed you about the truth at Troy. If I spoke falsely, you falsified coins, Sinon said. I'm down here because of a single fault, whereas your faults are more than any demons. Liar, keep the horse in mind, replied the one with the swollen belly. May you be tormented because the whole world knows about it. And may you be tormented by the thirst that cracks your tongue, the Greek said. And may you be plagued by the fetid water that blows up your stomach to hedge in your view. Then the money minter. As always, your mouth gapes open because of your disease. If I'm parched and bloated with my humors, you're burning up and have a pounding headache. To lick the mirror of Narcissus, you would need an invitation with very many words. I was fully occupied in listening to them when my master said to me, keep right on staring, and I'm just a little bit away from having a tiff with you. When I sensed he spoke to me in anger, I turned back to him with such shame that it still gyrates through my memory, like a guy who's had a dream about being hurt and, while dreaming, wishes he were only dreaming, longing for what is, even if it were not. So it was me, unable to utter a word. I wanted to beg for his pardon, even though all along I was doing the very thing I believed I wasn't doing. A greater crime would get washed off with less shame, my master said. Yours doesn't even stand at that level. So set down that burden that's making you sad. But know full well that I am right by your side, especially if by fortune you should get into a spot where people are having a squabble like this. The desire to overhear this sort of thing is a vulgar wish. One in the same tongue that had stung me, bringing the blush to one of my cheeks and the other, then supplied me with the cure. So I've heard that Achilles' spear, the one that came from his father, could first cause a bad wound, then the good gift of healing. That's the whole bit of the tenth pit with the little bit of the eighth and Jerry DeBello there as they walk out of it at the start of Canto 29. Here's what I'd like to do. I have six points I'd like to make that are kind of generalized discussion points. If, again, we were in a literary seminar, these are the questions I would pose to you in advance, and you could come into the seminar with them, but we're not. We're in a podcast. We've got to do the best we can. So let's set off on these six different discussion questions. First, Canto 29 begins with a reprimand from Virgil, and Canto 30 ends with a reprimand from Virgil. The 10th pit is bracketed by Virgil's reprimands. First, Virgil reprimands in 29, Dante, for staring so long at the schismatics and says, why, why you didn't do this in the other pit? Why do you have to stare so much? But at the end of Canto 30, it seems an even larger reprimand, a tiff. I'm, I'm about to have a quarrel with you because you're just standing there staring. There is a difference in the staring, and I suppose we could 
posit that. We could say the first staring is self-interested. Dante is staring perhaps to find his relative, Jerry Del Bello. And so he's looking intently into the pit of the schismatics. How Dante the Pilgrim would know that Jerry Del Bello is there is a little bit difficult to figure out. But okay, we'll give it that that's what he's doing. It's self-interested staring. At the end of 30, he's staring out of gossipy, what, gossipy interest? Out of just listening to the low comedy of Master Adam and Sinon. Is that the difference in the reprimands? And notice, furthermore, that Virgil is mostly silent in Cantos 29 and 30. It starts with a reprimand from Virgil, and then we get that little bit where he questions Capocchio and Griffolino or we take it to be Griffolino, whether those alchemists are Italians, and then he prompts Dante to ask them anything he wants, and then he goes fully silent. He's rarely around. His presence isn't very much felt here in the 29th and 30th pits, except for the big bookends. Why, and here's the discussion question, why then does Virgil bookend the 10th pit? What is it about Virgil? Or how about this? Why is it that the 10th pit is bookended with Virgilian rebukes? Is it something about Virgil that stands as brackets around this pit? Something about his poetics? Something about the epic quality of his poetry? Something about the pastoral quality of his Georgics? Is there something about Virgil that is allowing his figure to bracket it. The old days, the old commentary would have said it's reason that these people in the pit are fools and unreasonable. Master Adam and Capocchio and the rest of them, Sinon, they're just fools. And this kind of stern reason is standing there <laughs> almost as if St. Thomas Aquinas is standing on either side of these passages. I mean, this stern, rational thought is standing there around these fools. That could be an answer. Maybe there are other answers. Is it that this low comedy is bracketed by epic? Is it that there's a way in which Virgil as a guide is necessary as a guardrail, particularly here with the falsifiers? Is there a way that Dante himself is particularly tempted by these figures? Is there a way that Dante's craft is tempted by these figures? Is there a way that Virgil forms a guardrail? And you should notice and remember that this pit, the 10th pit, is full of Ovid. All the references to Thebes and Troy, there are all these Ovidian references everywhere going on inside a pit in which Virgil is mostly missing but bracketing the edges. That also seems really important in some fundamental way. And it may lead us to a second question that we could raise for discussion. You'll note that the pit begins with Capolcio and Griffolino in a kind of contest with each other. They're basically having a contest about who has seen the bigger fools. Griffolino is caught talking about the 
idiocy of a man who thought that he could teach him how to fly and Capocchio comes back and lists off all these people who were who are spendthrifts who spent down all their money in Siena just because they're so vain that they think they can spend it down. I mean, it's kind of a contest of who has seen the bigger fools in their life up above, despite the fact that they're both alchemists. They're having a contest not related to their sin or not related to the reason they were damned. And then in the 30th canto, Master Adam and Sinon have a contest. And this is an contest not who has seen the bigger fool but who can make the better insult who can insult each other better and again it's not about their various sins counterfeiting and giving false testimony instead it's a contest about their wits and how how bets who can best insult each other it's a street brawl of insults outdoing each other Interesting here that we have these two figures, these two pairs that open and close the pit, both trying to outdo each other. And it reminds us in a pit full of Ovid, full of Ovidian references, it reminds us of the way Dante tried to outdo Ovid in the pit of the thieves. Here's what I want to say about that and that I think is so interesting and that I would push in a discussion. That pit of the thieves with the metamorphoses that go on from the snakes and lizards in that pit, that is perhaps the most unsuccessful part of Inferno. The reason it's unsuccessful, it is so self consciously trying to outdo Ovid. Here in the 10th pit, we have much more assured poetry in which the Ovidian references are woven carefully into the text, in which Virgil again is left out of the text, and in which we have metamorphosized souls, souls who have been changed by disease. This pit is also about metamorphosis. And let's face it, everything they did, alchemy, counterfeiting, false testimony, I mean, it's all versions of various kinds of infernal and venal metamorphoses up on the terrestrial plane. Here, they've been metamorphosized by disease. And we all know disease, contagion, it does metamorphosize you. I mentioned to you that I helped my father die of liver cancer. And one of the things that was so horrifying is to watch the physical metamorphosis of my father in the last several months of his life. He changed the way he looked. One of the things that was so shocking is my father had deep brown eyes. And in the last days of his life, his eyes turned blue. This is a common problem in advanced liver cancer. I remember looking at my father lying there in the bed on the last couple days of his life thinking, wait, my dad doesn't have blue eyes, does he? I mean, I'm the only blue-eyed guy in my family. My dad surely doesn't have blue eyes. That metamorphosis just echoes for me throughout this pit. And this pit is about metamorphoses, but it is more elegant, more sure-footed. It rings more changes than that pit of the thieves in which Dante the poet is so 
desperately trying to outdo Ovid. Maybe that's why Virgil's bracketing this pit. Maybe there is a way that this is an Ovidian redo <laughs> from the thieves. This is a way in which you can more elegantly handle your poetic forefathers. Maybe, but maybe there are other reasons why two sets of outdoers start and end this pit. And maybe you could come up with some of those reasons. Here's a third discussion question. Everybody's twinned in this pit. We have Griffolino, or we take it to be Griffolino, and Capocchio. We have Gianni Schicchi and Mira. We have Sinon and Potiphar's wife. But we don't have a twin for Master Adam. Why is that? Everybody else in this pit gets a double. Someone who's there with them? Master Adam's all on his own. Now, ultimately, you could argue that Master Adam starts doubling with Sinon in their insult fest, but we're not given distinctly a double for Master Adam. Interesting that Master Adam has two moments. He's the only real figure in the pit that gets two full moments. Griffolino gets a little bit of two moments, but he's the only figure that gets two full moments because he's big soliloquy and then he gets his big insult match. So he does get twinned moments inside the pit in which his hatred is expressed in two different ways, in his own story and then towards Sinon, his unbelievable fiery hatred is expressed in two different ways. And his victimization, his kind of self-martyrdom or his, I don't know, what do I want to say, his gilded martyrdom that he wants to put out there, it's, it's, it's expressed in two different ways. So he does get twinned moments, but he's the only non-twinned figure in the pit. And he's the counterfeiter. Why is he the only non-twinned figure in the pit? I don't have an answer to this. And I, I mean, I do. I have some answers that I could talk to you about. They have to do, I think I did them in the podcast with Master Adam as a kind of representative of the new coming modern man. Master Adam as a kind of new economic order. There's a, all kinds of reasons behind his non-twinned nature. There are probably more, and it's just so intentional. It's clearly intentional, right? You can't set up a whole pit in which everybody's got a double, and then suddenly you have one figure, in fact, a major figure in the pit, one of the major figures of hell that doesn't have a double but has two big twinned moments. Very intriguing problems structurally and perhaps thematically. Okay, let's go on to a fourth discussion question. How does Master Adam's dropsy take part in the issue of Contrapasso? That is a bigger question than you can think. And it's connected directly to the rivulets of the Casentino, right? He, he, he remembers this Casentino, this, this watery area, beautiful, verdant, watery area of Italy. And he thinks, oh, I so miss the water. And here I am bloated up with dropsy. So, okay, his contrapasso is pretty clear, right? Well, then how does it work for the other counterfeiters? Do they all have dropsy? I mean, there's got to be a lot of other counterfeiters, things 11 miles around and half a mile wide. There's got to be others down here. Why does the Contrapasso specifically fit Master Adam's nostalgia? Does it fit the other counterfeiters? And while we're at it, 
are we sure that the other counterfeiters are punished in the same way? Well, there's no indication of that. Maybe there's a lot of different diseases running around this pit, and we just happen to see diseases that fit the crime of the person creating the sin. We see the disease that fits the falsifier's personal history. But then why do we see two fevered souls? Why do we see two leprous souls? Why do we see two rabid souls? There seems to be an indication that based on what kind of falsification you did, that determines what kind of disease you had. So do other counterfeiters have dropsy too? And they can't have all been around watery, verdant regions of central Italy, can they? Notice that the problem of Contrapasso is more complicated than you think it is. This goes all the way back to Farinata in his tomb. Remember Farinata back there with the Epicureans, and remember he's there, he's uh, in that tomb, and we're told that Epicureans deny the resurrection, and that's why he's in a tomb, because he denied this very thing, and it's an open tomb, which is reminiscent of Christ's resurrection. Nice contrapasso, right? What about the other heretics? What about the Aryan heretics? What about their tombs? Are they in open burning tombs too? And if so, how does that fit their heresy? What if my heresy is, I don't know, to deny the virgin birth? How does an open burning tomb fit my heresy? There's a way in which this contrapasso is directed toward a specific soul who Dante the Pilgrim encounters, but the larger ramifications of it are either unexplored or potentially uninteresting to the poet, or potentially he leaves the door open for enough diseases that other counterfeiters would have other diseases in this pit. It's just all very interestingly difficult. There are all kinds of Bible stories resonating around inside this pit. I told you about the pigs, and I told you about Jesus casting the demons out of the guy. So many demons inside the guy that the demons claim their name is Legion. They don't want to be cast into eternal darkness. Jesus doesn't know quite what to do. So they say, hey, there's a herd of pigs. <laughs> Cast us into those. He does. And the pigs run off the edge of the cliff into the sea. Right? I told you that. There's more in here, too. There's the story from Luke 16 of Lazarus. Lazarus, probably not the same Lazarus who Jesus raises from the dead. Probably not that brother of Mary and Martha, but probably another figure in a parable named Lazarus. But maybe the same. It's hard to say. The Lazarus dies and goes to heaven, and he's sitting up there. He's a poor guy. He's a beggar, we're told, which leads us not to think he's the brother of Mary and Martha. He's up there in heaven, and he's a beggar. He's in Abraham's bosom, and a rich man who refused to give Lazarus any alms in this world dies and goes to hell. This rich man doesn't get a name in Luke, but over the tradition of Christianity, this rich man has gotten the name of Dives. It's given in the text, but it's traditionally he's called Dives. Okay, so Dives is there. He's burning up in hell, and he begs Lazarus, sitting up there in Abraham's bosom in hell, begs Lazarus to 
dip his finger in water and come down to hell and, you know, drop a little water on poor rich man's burning tongue in hell. That story is clearly running around behind Master Adam, who is dying of thirst and would like one droplet of water. He's clearly Dives, who has come on into hell. Now, I don't mean to say that we've actually come upon Dives here. Master Adam is Master Adam. But he's continuing that story. And this is what's so interesting. Dante seems to be continuing the story of Bible stories. In other words, those pigs went off that cliff. Well, they got filled with demons and then went off that cliff. And what happened to them? Well, here they are. They're down here. They're running around like like rabid, crazy souls with tusks biting other falsifiers. Divas, he goes to hell. He can't cut any water. What happens to him? Well, he's down here. He's full of hatred and contempt. He's a contemptible and contemptuous soul. He's a nasty human down here in hell, still begging for his drop of water. Dante is continuing on these stories from the Bible. It's as if they come to a halt, the pigs go over a cliff, for example, and then Dante is I don't want to say completing, but he's giving more of the story or the rich man who's down in hell burning up, just wanting a drop of water. He's giving more of the story. Let me put it this way. Dante is giving you the afterlife of Bible stories. If that's the case, that Dante's writing on beyond the ending of Bible stories, then the truth of the matter is that Dante is not quite involved in falsification, although that's certainly at the heart of Dante's art, falsification. Rather, he's building off future moments. He's writing beyond the ending. He is not quite making it up. Instead, he's completing, filling out. Wow, what's the right word here? Mm. He's going on with the stories from the Bible himself. And there's precedent for this. Saints go on, right? They die. They're martyred. They die at the stake or they die for whatever reason they die. Then they come back. I mean, saints have, quote, unquote, lives after their deaths. They come back. They heal people. They answer people. The Virgin is starting to have, especially in Dante's day, more and more of a life on earth after her assumption into heaven. There's precedent for this that you write beyond the ending. The saint gets burned the stake, but then later appears and heals some little girl or appears in front of a group of orphans or appears in front of a rich man who needs a reprimand. In fact, here, Dante seems to start playing with the afterlife, but that is what all of comedy is, right? Comedy is writing the afterlife. Anybody here, Pope Nicholas III, Ferranata, any of them, Brunetto Latini, that's the very nature of comedy, is to write beyond the ending, to tell, okay, <laughs> Brunetto Latini he wrote certain books, he walked around on earth, blah, 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 and now here's what happened to him since then. There he is, down on the burning sands, walking around, wanting to have a conversation with our pilgrim. We find out more beyond the ending of these characters. That is the nature of comedy, to write beyond the ending. In fact, I could make a huge argument that comedy opens with an ending. 
that it opens with waking up in a dark wood and that the entire next hundred cantos is writing beyond the ending. There is a way in which the pilgrim's life has come to a stop and then this is what happens next. And we don't really know ever why the pilgrim's life has come to a stop. We don't ever really know how he got to that dark wood. But we certainly know that something came to an end. And then this world with Virgil and this journey opened up writing beyond the ending. And here's my sixth discussion point, and it's really not a question. It's just something I thought about endlessly as I was working through the episodes. I couldn't get out of my mind the moment in Angels in America when Harper and Pryor first meet. If you don't know the play Millennium Approaches, the first part of Angels in America, let me just tell you what happens. Pryor is dying of AIDS. He is in full-blown AIDS with Kaposi's sarcoma and lung problems and stomach problems and probably thrush. And I mean, he's, he's in full-blown AIDS. Pryor's lover leaves him, not because he can't stand to see Pryor die, although that's part of it, but Lewis walks out on Pryor because Lewis cannot handle the body. He cannot handle the blood, the urine, the diarrhea that is coming with Pryor's death. Lewis runs for his life, sadly, and leaves Pryor in the lurch. Harper's story is different. She's married to Joe Pitt. Joe Pitt is the clerk of a very prominent judge and the, mm, ah, what do I want to say, the protege of Roy Cohn, the great, <laughs> horrible lawyer Roy Cohn, somebody Lewis later in the play calls the pole star of human evil. He's the protege of Roy Cohn and a clerk for a judge. And Joe Pitt is gay and has been leaving Harper alone at night. Both Harper and Pryor have been abandoned. Pryor is in drag because he is trying to cheer himself up. Clearly, he used to dress in drag and he no longer does. So he's metamorphosized. He's also being metamorphosized by his disease. Harper has begun to take Valium. In a fevered moment when Pryor is unbelievably sick with a high fever and maybe trying to dress in drag to cheer himself up, and Harper has downed a handful of Valium, they meet inside a common hallucination. And Harper says at one point, the world is depressingly finite. She says this to Pryor to say to him, even though we're meeting in this space, which she identifies as the threshold of revelation, we're here, yet around us, the world is a depressingly finite place. They have a pretty funny conversation. She says to him, she and her husband are both Mormons. She says to him, my religion doesn't believe in homosexuals. And Pryor says back to her, well, my religion doesn't, <laughs> doesn't believe in Mormons. They have a very funny but very sad conversation in this common hallucination. And there is this one moment in which Harper, right at the end, reaches out to Pryor. And she says, deep inside you, the most inner part there's a part of you entirely free of disease. I couldn't help but think about that 
in this pit because this pit has an astounding, magnificent array of emotional changes in the same way that Harper and Pryor's dialogue has in Angels in America. That is, we go from low comedy to terror to rabid souls to tusks. I mean, literally, this thing is full of horrible diseases. It stinks, yet it's funny. The emotional changes that Dante is ringing in the 10th falsification pit are magnificently broad. It is a tour de force of shifting from one tonality to another, just like that scene from Harper and Pryor, and just like that scene where at the end of it she says to Pryor, there's a part of you I can see that is free of disease deep inside of you. I swear that's this pit. That's the low comedy. That's the humor of Capolcio and Griffolino. That's the weird humor of Master Adam and Sinon. Deep down inside, these metamorphic, <laughs> dare I say that, metamorphic? These metamorphic souls are still human. And we're still laughing with, maybe at, them. Even though everything happening to them is so catastrophic and so horrible and so almost inhuman. And yet at the same time, it is so deeply human. I mean, there's a reason why this last pit is full of disease. Because what is more human than the notion that we get sick? What is more human than the body in pain? Well, that's a lot in the 10th pit of the falsifiers, a pit that I used to dismiss pretty quickly when I taught Inferno and that I have learned to see is a complicated and wild evil pouch of fraud. We're done with the evil pouches of fraud, sort of. We're going on in the next episode to an overview of the entire Eighth Circle. No, I promise I'm not going to read the whole Eighth Circle to you. Maybe some five-hour episode. I'm not going to read the entire Eighth Circle to you, but I am going to talk about fraud as a whole and the ramifications of this next-to-the-last pit of hell with its ten evil patches. So subscribe to the podcast. Thank you you for being on this walk with me. I wish I could write you a rating and say thank you for being here with me. This is an overwhelming journey for me that has overtaken my life (laughs) and I hope yours too. I'm Mark Scarborough and this is Walking with Dante. (music) 